episode, we open our Bibles to Ruth, chapter 3. After Ruth's encounter with Boaz in yesterday's chapter, today, Naomi, feeling the weight of her loss and her daughter-in-law's widowhood, devises a plan to secure a future for Ruth. She tells her to sneak into the threshing floor where the wealthy landover Boaz is working late at night, and she obeys. And while Boaz is sleeping, the text says she uncovers his feet, which startles Boaz. And the next thing you know, they're talking about marriage. Good morning and blessed epiphany time. Today is Tuesday, January 24th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. As always, Thy Strong Word is brought to you by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Next time you're online, head over to lhfmissions.org to learn more about their publishing and translating work. Find out all the ways they help ministries succeed in spreading the gospel with foreign language resources rooted in the Lutheran tradition. They also have mission speakers that will come and speak with your congregation, so check them out. That's lhfmissions.org. Well, today is a slightly unusual episode in that as we head into Ruth chapter 3, I am without a guest. (laughs) Through no fault of his own, our scheduled guest couldn't make it this morning, so I'm going at it alone. But because we're live, I invite you, dear listener, to be part of the program. If you'd like to ask a question or make a comment on the air, call me at 1-800-730-2727. Our friendly board operator and producer, Dan, will take your call and patch you right through. That number again is 1-800-730-2727. Well, before we dive into the text, it's our custom to begin our time together in prayer. Dearest, most holy and heavenly Father, the eyes of all look to you, O Lord, and you give us what we need at the proper time. We ask, O Lord, that you send into our midst a measure, an extra measure of your spirit. So that which we study, you would have us learn that which you would want us to know, to grow our faith and our love toward one another and toward you. As we look at this story, which is a tale of of faithfulness and uh, suspense and intrigue, we ask, O Lord, that you enliven our hearts with the joy that comes from knowing that you have inspired this word for our benefit. All these things we pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. So folks, one of the reasons why I chose Ruth as a topic is because this was a book of the Bible that I honestly wasn't very familiar with. It's a short book, only four chapters long, and it, as I've said before, it has that interesting honor of being one of only two books in the Bible named for women, at least in the 66 books of the Bible. Uh, we have Judith in uh, the Apocrypha, but but there's a little bit of mystery behind this book. Well, I mean, we don't really know who wrote it, but we do know that whoever it was was a fantastic storyteller. Now, that's not to say that the book of Ruth is a work of fiction. No, it's been accepted as history from ancient times, but it's a historical story about real people and, frankly, some mundane, ordinary life issues I mean, spouses dying, having to figure out moving expenses, taking care of oneself. But all these things are told in a way that gives us a glimpse into the harsh life of the Israelites during the time of the judges before they had kings. 
and the struggle of these particular women who lost their husbands and by extension lost their primary means of survival at a time when it couldn't have been worse for them. But the author takes these circumstances and he shows how God weaves together the lives of these people, which results in not only a compelling love story, but also a tale of faithfulness and redemption and how this community in Bethlehem welcomed into their midst a foreigner at a time when feeding themselves would have been difficult. It also shows us the strength of these women in a society that, you know, probably didn't look to women for strength. So ultimately, we see here not only these great, developed, wonderful people told to us in this very creative way, but it also directs our hearts toward our Savior and our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. So folks, if you're just joining us this morning and you haven't had the chance to hear the first couple episodes or even read the first two chapters, let me catch you up. The book of Ruth opens by telling us about Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons who were forced to leave their home in Bethlehem due to a devastating famine. So they journeyed to the land of Moab where, well, tragedy struck when Elimelech died. His two sons, Kileon and Malon, they married Moabite women, Orpah, that's Kileon's wife, and Ruth, Malon's wife. But any happiness was short-lived because then, in a short amount of time, both those sons passed away. And all this happened, I guess, within about a decade. So with nothing left for her in Moab, Naomi decided to return to Bethlehem with the hope of starting anew, basically back home in a town where people knew her, where people would have known her husband. But she knows that for Orpah and Ruth to head back to Bethlehem, a foreign country for them, well, that wouldn't have done them any good. So she urged both daughters-in-law to return to their homelands, their father's homes, where they would have a better chance of being taken care of. Well, as we went through the chapter, we see that after some insistence on Naomi's part, Orpah chose to stay behind. But Ruth, for whom the book is named, out of faithfulness and love for Naomi, joined her on her journey back home to Bethlehem. So this is the source of that famous quote where she says, For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May Yahweh do so to me and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. So I think that's a beautiful sentiment. It shows her faith not only in Yahweh, but also her commitment to Naomi. I, as I said during the when we covered this the first time we opened up Ruth, I have a feeling that that Ruth had already abandoned the false gods of the Moabites and had already been given faith in Yahweh. And this is just a demonstration of faith. It's not as though Orpah was sinning by staying back and staying home with her family. She just didn't have the same faith that Ruth had. So here we see this just beautiful declaration of faith. And what I think is interesting is that, and I didn't know this, but this is a text that's sometimes used in weddings. So maybe this is something that you're at home thinking, oh yeah, I've heard this at weddings or, oh, of course this is used at weddings. Well, I've been doing weddings for 15 years. I've never used this text never even thought about it. 
But I can see why it would be used, right? You know, where you go, I will go. Where you live, I'll live. Um, where you die, I will die. I mean, it definitely has some of those everlasting marriage kind of themes in it. But funny enough, this is Ruth saying this to her mother-in-law, not words between a husband and wife. But we do that a lot, don't we? We, we take Bible verses and we repurpose them. Uh, like the love chapter in Corinthians, you know, that's often used too when it's really talking about this Christian love or the love of Christ and we take it and we apply it to ourselves to each other. And sometimes that's appropriate, right? We take those Bible verses and we repurpose them in faithful ways. And sometimes we don't do it so faithfully. We we take verses out of context and use them in ways that they're not intended. But anyway, I, I'm getting derailed. I just think that's kind of interesting. So in chapter two, the pair then return to Bethlehem. And so in order to survive, Ruth and presumably Naomi too, don't, we don't have any records of that. Perhaps Naomi was doing this on, Na, uh, sorry, Ruth was doing this on Naomi's uh, behalf because she's younger, but they would glean barley in the fields after the harvesters had already made their way through. When they got back to Bethlehem, it was toward the end of the barley harvest. And so this was a common practice for widows and those in need. Actually, God's law provided for sojourners and the hungry by requiring some grain to be left behind. So that's what they would do. They would go out, and Ruth wasn't alone. There were other young women out there. There were other people who were collecting this. There were also the workers of the people who owned the fields. And so Ruth found herself in the fields of a wealthy landowner named Boaz. And Boaz was struck by her hard work and her kindness. I suspect she was probably pretty fair to look at too. And so he couldn't help but take note of her. And he started to show her favor. He told his men to leave her some extra grain, uh, to not harvest everything, give her a little a little ha a handout, right? And he even gives her a bunch to take home. He, and then he protects her too. And this part's important. He protects her. By telling her, you know, just come and glean in my field. Don't go to these other fields because, you know, you never know who's out there. Stick close to all my young women and my servants. That way, you know, you'll be protected. Because, as I said earlier, the times, well, they were difficult. There was this heightened sense of lawlessness during this time. And Ruth, as a young lady, would have had reason to be concerned for her safety. And not only as a young lady, but as a, as a foreigner. People wouldn't have immediately recognized who she was connected to, um, although the word did get around, and we find that out later. But, but Boaz, being the stand-up guy he is, he looks out for her. He tells her to stick close to his servants. So then a really important thing that happened yesterday was at the end of the chapter, Naomi explains to Ruth that Boaz is a redeemer, or in Hebrew, a goel. What is that? Well, this isn't something we really have in our culture, at least I couldn't think of any parallels, but it certainly was a part of Hebrew society, really a gift from God. A kinsman redeemer was a close male relative who had the responsibility to act on behalf of a family member if they were in need. And this could take all kinds of different forms. It could be buying back land that had been sold. It could be redeeming a family member who had been sold into slavery. Um, and while it wasn't exactly the same thing as the Leverite marriage where a brother would marry his brother's widow, 
Redeemers could marry a childless widow in order to preserve the family line. They wouldn't have been obligated to, but they could have done that. And so Boaz, as a relative of Elimelech, Naomi's late husband, well, he would be in line to help in this capacity. He also had the means. He seemed to be pretty wealthy. So Naomi surmises that, well, while I'm too old to remarry, Boaz could marry Ruth, continue the family line, and provide for him. And so that's, that's sort of the scheme, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but that's the scheme that Naomi sets in motion in yesterday's chapter. Which now, at long last, brings us to today's text. Chapter 3 only has 18 verses, but there is a lot for us to feast on in these verses. So why don't we begin? I'm going to read chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 from the English Standard Version. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, Truth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go, and uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So this text is interesting in a bunch of different ways. The first off, the thing that just sort of stands out to me is when she says in verse 2, is not Boaz our relative? The fact that she's using the term our relative, she's including Ruth in, in the family automatically, uh, I think is a beautiful testimony to a couple of things. One. Uh, Naomi has these same feelings and loyalty to Ruth. We often talk about Ruth's loyalty to Naomi, but Naomi considers her more than just a, a burden or someone she's having to take care of. She considers her her daughter. And if you remember from the earlier chapters, Naomi feels terribly responsible for providing for Ruth. When early on she urged Ruth and Orpah to go back to their homes, it's because of this very fact. She didn't have any more sons to take care of them. Her husband was gone. And so she was really just thinking of their well-being. I mean, it's not as though she was just wanting to be rid of them. But as much as I'm sure that she was happy that Ruth was faithful to her and faithful to Yahweh and that Ruth was around, I mean, she still had concern that Ruth was going to have to be gleaning for the rest of her life in the fields when, you know, she's still a young lady. She could easily remarry. So we see here, Naomi says in verse one, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? See, she's really looking to take care of Naomi. Um, pardon me, Ruth. Uh, but Naomi, now she'd benefit too, right? She wouldn't have to help take care of Ruth or I don't know, maybe better put, Ruth wouldn't be burdened with taking care of her. Plus, because of Ruth's faithfulness and essentially her adoption as Naomi's daughter, having a wealthy son-in-law in a time of famine and turmoil wouldn't exactly hurt. So I'm not besmirching Naomi's uh, intentions here, but, you know, she's, she's, she's a big picture woman. She's looking at all of this saying, you know, Ruth will be taken care of. 
uh, here are people in my family who will help, you know, provide for us and redeem us. So earlier on, Naomi had come up with this plan to be a matchmaker, so to speak, between Ruth and Boaz. And so now in chapter three, it's, it's approaching the climax of the story. She had previously brought up the idea of Boaz being a kinsman redeemer. And so in verse two, she says, is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? Our relative. Now, I should note here, it might seem a bit off-putting for us, for them to be, uh, I don't know, keeping it in the family, so to speak, right? Our relative. She's basically saying, I'm going to marry you to our relative. But a couple things to remember is that the relationship between Boaz and Naomi is one of marriage, not blood. And, and even then, still likely fairly distant. There's no indication that Boaz is like the brother of Elimelech or anything like that. And Ruth, the prospective bride in this scenario, well, she's a foreigner. So there's no need for us to get hung up when, he's, when she speaks about you know, Boaz being our relative. I just bring that up because I think that stands out to us today. We we don't think in terms of clans or in these sort of uh, you know tribes. We think a lot more in terms of family. It's like, well, that's mom, dad, uncle, that sort of thing. That's not exactly what's going on here. But anyway, Naomi continues. She says, look, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. I'm just going to stop there again. Let me paint the picture for you. So it's in the evening when the heat of the day is gone, the harvest is done, and so the workers would come to process the grain. Now, threshing barley was a labor-intensive process where you separated the grain from the chaff. And the threshing floor, well, the threshing floor was like this flat surface, a hard-packed earth or maybe stone in a big circle. And I, and I bring that up because when I picture it in my head, every time I read this, even now, I always seem to think of like a, a wooden shack with equipment in there that they're using to process the barley. And we know that he, you know, Ruth is going to go in there and she's going to basically take a nap there with, with a Boaz who's hanging out in there. And it just seems very private. It's, it's just out of the way. But that's not what's going on. It's very likely a big circular open air place where all of this work would have been done, even outside the town, just a big, large open space. And so one common method of threshing barley was to spread out all the harvested grain on the threshing floor and then to use oxen or donkeys or some animal to walk over it. And of course, they would their hooves would beat the barley and they'd separate the grain from the chaff and the chaff would then be winnowed. That's tossing in the air and then allowing the wind to blow away that unwanted chaff and the heavier grain just falls back to the threshing floor. Uh, another method would have been to use what they call a, a threshing sledge, like a big wooden board with sharp stones on it. Uh, the, same, the same idea. And so uh, another reason to do this at night, besides it not being hot and besides it being at the end of the harvest, was because there's a lot more wind at night. So that would have helped in the winnowing. So, I mean, that raises the question, though, why, why is Boaz, the wealthy landowner, doing the work? Or, or at least some of it, right? Well, I can only speculate, but first off, any method of threshing and winnowing would have been hard work. 
it would have required a lot of manual labor. So I wonder if this is a little insight into Boaz's character as a stand-up guy. You know, he's there among his workers, working among them. I suppose it's also likely that he's there supervising too, though. <laughs> and that makes sense. But also, it's a social event. Right? There they are. They finish the harvest, and there's a social aspect to it. Not only are all the people, workers and, and owners, coming together to help each other in the threshing and the winnowing, but there's a little celebrating going on too, a little revelry. It's the end of the harvest. You know, everyone's congregating. They're praising the Lord. Um, and this seems especially likely with what Naomi says in verse 3. She talks about him uh, when he's finished eating and drinking. We haven't gotten there yet, uh, but or we haven't gotten there again yet. But he talks about him finished eating and drinking. So we have this idea of there's a celebration going on, and that's going to be really common. Even in pagan cultures, these celebrations would take place while they, however, would really go over the line into what we would consider very immoral behavior. There's no indication that's what's going on here. But I should say, sort of as a heads up, especially to parents who may be listening with small children, in a few moments we'll be discussing the possibility of let's say a PG-13 interpretation of the text. So I just wanted to give you a heads up there. Well, this is what she says. She tells Ruth, uh, go wash, wash therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. So a couple of things here. First, the eating and the drinking, right? This, uh, this suggests that celebration that I was talking about. But is he alone? Well, no, he's not alone yet, but he would eventually be alone. But why would he be alone? Where, where would everybody else go? Well, frankly, they'd go home. You see, threshing floors being open air and then located outside of town or far from where the farmer or the owner lived well, all that processed grain would just be heaped up there and open to thieves, especially if times are tough and there's a lingering fan. So it's not unreasonable that Boaz would have taken it upon himself to sleep all night at the threshing floor to protect his grain. But there's something going on here that's a little more interesting than just the methods of threshing barley. <laughs> What does Naomi tell Ruth to do? Well, she says, go wash yourself, anoint yourself with some nice oil, you know, some perfume, put on something pretty and go down to the threshing floor. But then don't make yourself known to him until he has finished eating and drinking. Essentially, Naomi sends Ruth to lie and wait until Boaz is nice and sleepy and maybe a little warm from the alcohol I'm assuming he's been drinking before she makes her move. Plus, right, another reason for waiting is she wanted to make sure that Boaz was alone, that the other workers had left. So now <laughs> Naomi telling Ruth to go wash yourself and put on some perfume isn't as insulting as it may first appear. Uh, we can understand that baths would have been fairly infrequent during this time. Washing oneself for something important, though, was a, a, 
a pretty common custom. People would wash and bathe themselves before worship. People would wash themselves for important events or celebrations. People would wash themselves before sexual activity. I mean, we think of washing ourselves all the time, taking showers and other conveniences. But back then, it would be often just when it was necessary. And what was coming up was a situation that Naomi was perceiving it would be necessary. So the question, well, the $25,000 question is what is going to happen next? What does Naomi have in mind for Ruth to do? Well, this is a question that has produced not a little consternation on the part of modest interpreters. Specifically, what does Naomi mean when she sends in Ruth to, quote, uncover his feet? That is, uncover Boaz's feet. Well, there's some speculation that this phrase, uncover his feet, is a euphemism for uncovering one's private areas, or I guess specifically, initiating sexual intercourse. Now, that certainly changes the tone of what's going on here. So far, we've heard about Ruth and her faithfulness to Naomi. We've heard about her faithfulness to Yahweh. Your God will be my God. Naomi is one who is faithful, who has returned to the home of her ancestors, to Bethlehem, right? Where Jesus would eventually be born, the house of David, where David would be born. And so we are, we are seeing these people being described as faithful servants of Yahweh. Even out in the fields, they, ref, they talk to each other, Boaz and Ruth, by calling upon the name of the Lord. Naomi calls upon the name of the Lord when she talks about Boaz and when she speaks of Ruth too. And so are we to believe that what's going on here is something salacious? Are we to see this situation as, as Naomi sending Ruth in to do something that would be somewhat inappropriate? Well, I tell you what. It's just a few minutes early, but we're going to take a break, and I want you to think about it. Think about what we know so far and see if this is something that, well, you think they would do. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. And with me today is, well, no one. It's just me, folks. But you are invited to be a part of the conversation. It's really easy to do. If you'd like to ask a question or make a comment on the air, just call me at 
730-230-2727. But you also don't have to call in. You can also direct your questions or comments to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. Now, before the break, I had presented the possibility that something a little unsavory might be going on here. There's some speculation that when Naomi instructs Ruth to go to Boaz and uncover his feet, that this is a euphemism for uncovering one's private areas. Well, actually, in particular, uncovering a man's private areas, initiating sexual intercourse. This comes from the fact that the Hebrew word regel, which means foot, has been used as a euphemism for a male's private parts. Now, the Bible often speaks of many sexual issues. It speaks of sexual activity. Um, it speaks of body parts, genitalia, but it's frequently euphemistic or modest in how it approaches it, which I think is probably a pretty good example for us today, too, especially as we think about the hypersexualized world in which we live, where some of these topics, while natural and God-pleasing, are, are spoken of so casually that they, they lose that effect. Well, the Bible doesn't. It, it doesn't shy away from the issues presented by these types of things, but it still speaks about them in a way that, let's just say, is fairly polite. Well, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, this Hebrew word regel is euphemistic about male genitalia. And I have some examples here for you. Uh, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 25, now this is famously when Abraham is heading uh, down, they're heading out of town. And as they're going, God sets off to kill Abraham. And then Zipporah, his wife, she takes – the Bible says, And Zipporah took a flint and cut off the foreskin of her son and brought it and put it next to Abraham's uh, ragla, his, his feet, his regala. So we see here that it's used – regel is used for Abraham's foot, but scholars will agree that – or I guess they will debate. A lot of them agree that this is probably euphemistic for his private area. And since we're talking about circumcision and God's, God's uh, command to circumcise, that sort of makes sense. There is a, uh, a rude area in the Bible where, where foot is used euphemistically. And this is found in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 27. Uh, and they're speaking uh, in a very um, insulting way. Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and to drink from the waters of their feet? It literally says the waters of their feet. Well, the ESV translates that urine. I'll let you enjoy that uh, mental image. But then in Isaiah 6, the prophet speaks of the cherubim. And he says, above God stood the seraphim, pardon me, the seraphim, the seraphim, each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And many think that this is uh, him covering his feet is also a euphemism for the angel covering what would be his private area. And there are others, but the point is that if you combine the understanding that regel or foot is sometimes used as male genitalia, then it gives a little bit of a new uh, and rather uh, startling interpretation to Naomi sending her young widowed daughter-in-law to go to this man and uncover his feet 
figuratively while he's sleeping. Um, and then if you add that to the fact that the Bible speaks of uncovering nakedness as a euphemism for sexual activity, then it might lead you to believe that uncovering another's foot might suggest that Naomi is giving Ruth the instructions that she should go and seduce Boaz. Now, that is an interesting interpretation. And so the question is, is that the correct interpretation? Um, should we even consider it? Should we just dismiss it outright? Well, let me first be clear. I do not think that that is what's going on. I don't think that Naomi is sending Ruth to seduce Boaz. But I don't think we should just discount it outright. When I've spoken about this and when I've read it in commentaries, most a lot of them are very quick to just say, oh, no, this, this isn't what's going on because Boaz and, and Ruth and even Naomi, they're all really good people. They all love, they love God, right? They, they love their country. They love Jesus too, right? So th these people are, are all good. They'll never do this. And I don't think that's a good reason to just discount this idea. I think it's an interpretation worth considering even though Ruth and Naomi and Boaz are faithful to Yahweh. And here's a, first, here's a few reasons. First, we need to take the icons off the wall, as I've said before, right? Take the icons of Ruth and Naomi off the wall, Boaz too, and shake all the gold off of it. Remember that the saints of old are also sinners too. And if we were reading this text for the very first time with no preconceived notions or opinions about Ruth, or Boaz, would we just sort of knee-jerk, oh, nope, this has to mean something completely literal. It can't be euphemistic, euphemistic for sexual activity because they would never do that. Well, let's say we don't know who they are. We know what we've been told so far. And what we've been told so far is that Ruth and Naomi are widows living in a land that just seems to be slowly recovering from a famine, living in a lawless time. They... Literally, Ruth goes out and picks the leftovers out of people's fields to survive. There is a sense of desperation about Ruth and Naomi that comes through if you take out the foregone conclusion that God's going to take care of them. They are desperate. Or if you just look at it from their points of view. So there's a desperation. And then there's also a simple sinfulness about it. Why, why would it be so surprising that Naomi says, hey, Ruth, you have to do what you got to do to survive. You know, go seduce this guy. He's rich. He owns all this stuff. He's already shown that he likes you by protecting you and giving you extra grain and that sort of stuff. So, you know, go seal the deal, so to speak. And you might think, oh, that's just, that's just wrong. Well, why is it wrong? I mean, we know it's sinful. I'm not saying it's not. But why is it wrong to assume that that is one way to interpret this? Because it's Ruth? Because it's Naomi? Well, maybe. And, and, and I think that that certainly will come to pass. But we have to take ourselves as if we've not read the rest of the chapter, we've, as if we've not read the rest of the book. You know, so far, I don't think we have too much reason to reject it. But I do. Now, I do, but it's simply for textual reasons, and we're going to get that. We're going to see that when we're given more information. I will say, though, to begin with, the word used here for feet is not the basic word regel, but uh, margeloth, which means the place of the foot. 
So Margoloth, so far as I know, isn't used as a euphemism. So I guess it's pretty reasonable to understand this as completely literally, um, and it just means to uncover his feet. That still begs the question, why? Why uncover his feet? Even if it's literal feet, what does that do? Uh, one commentator said, well, it, it causes him to be a little cold, and then he'll slowly wake up. I suppose. I mean, she, she wants to sneak up by him and lay next to his feet. She doesn't want to wake him while she's doing that, but she wants to uncover his feet so that he'll get cold and wake up eventually. I don't know. I, I think we don't know. But I don't think that we're supposed to be making excuses at this point. I'll explain in a minute. Let's hear verses 6 and 7. So she went down to the threshing floor, and she did as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Now, as I said before, Boaz's heart is merry from the celebration. Now, there's nothing to suggest he's drunk, mind you, just sleepy and content, and he lays the end of the heap of grain to protect it, as I mentioned earlier. Then Ruth puts her plan, or maybe I should say Naomi's plan, into action. She carefully sneaks up to him, uncovers his feet, and lays down at his feet. Now, just to muddy the waters, the word shakav, which is that phrase to lie down, is used eight times between verses 4 and 14. And shakav means just what it sounds like, to lie down. But maybe you've guessed it. Shakav is also a euphemism for sexual activity. Remember when I told you that the author of Ruth was a master storyteller? Here's what I think. While I don't believe that Ruth is seducing Boaz, I mean, they are both described as blessed by Yahweh. We do see that. But I do believe that the author wants us to consider it. He wants us to be in suspense. He wants to lead us just for a moment as he's relaying the story to us down the wrong path to get the wrong idea. Will these two faithful servants of Yahweh give into temptation? Will Ruth transgress God's law just as she has come to believe in him only to secure her future? Will a tipsy Boaz give in to his affection for Ruth, who now lays alone at his feet in the cool of the night with no one around? There's suspense. And if this were a TV show, well, this is when they would cut to a commercial. But as it is not, let's just see what happens. Verse 8 and 9. At midnight, the man was startled, and he turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Folks, it would be hard to argue that there's no innuendo here. I mean, the author is describing these events in such a way to build suspense and perhaps lead us to the wrong conclusions. We have all this talk of lying down, all this talk of uncovering feet, right? Is that, is that euphemistic? Is that literal? You know, if we're first reading this, we don't know. 
And we kind of are waiting with our with holding our breath to see if these faithful servants will give in to temptation. And then he's then she speaks and she says, spread your wings over your servant. The Hebrew word kanaf wing here refers to both like a literal wing, wing of a bird, wing of an angel. And it also refers to the corner of a garment. So once again, there's some double entendre at play here. Remember that in chapter 2, verse 12, when Boaz is commending Ruth for her faithfulness to Naomi, Naomi, he says to her, The Lord or Yahweh repay you for what you have done, and a full reward will be given you by Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So here's one meaning of Ruth's statement in that she sees in Boaz the protection of Yahweh as a kinsman redeemer, as one who blessed her in God's name when he was out in the fields. She's appealing to Boaz for him to be the incarnation of God's protection, right? Spread your wings over your servant. But taken literally, one could jump to the conclusion that, well, she wants him to cover her with his garment, another sexual innuendo, but not so fast. Because placing the edge of a garment over a woman symbolizes taking her in marriage. In Ezekiel chapter 16, 8, we read, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares Yahweh God, and you became mine. Of course, this is the Lord God speaking about his relationship with his people, with Israel. But he's using the word of language, spreading the corner of his garment. Not uncovering nakedness, but covering nakedness, right? These are, these are phrases which refer to uh, the, the, the marital bed, this, this intimate relationship, an appropriate relationship. So we see here Ruth not as we could jump to the conclusion saying, you know, throw, your, throw yourself over me. She's actually being, a, well, pretty progressive for her time. She's asking Boaz to marry her. And then at once, our suspense of whether these two were going to have a, a sinful, tawdry affair on the threshing floor, a figurative and literal roll in the hay, so to speak, it, it collapses. It's broken. We now know that they are faithful to God and faithful to his will. Still, it's still quite unusual. <laughs> in fact, I believe completely unique in Scripture for a woman to propose marriage to a man. This is a matter usually handled by the parents. But nevertheless, we see uh, Boaz's moral character shining through in the way that he responds. Verse 10, and he said, May you be blessed by Yahweh, my daughter, for you have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. So, see how our emotions are toyed with 
if we let the text take us along. If we're reading the text, you know, trying to put ourselves in the original audience, trying to understand the narrative as it unfolds instead of just trying to to jump to, you know, well, I've checked off, I've read this book, I've, I, I, I'm, I'm no longer, uh, I, I can check Ruth off in my year through the Bible list. Take it slow and see how the author is toying with us a little bit. Our presuppositions are challenged about how these two would behave in this situation. Maybe we even judged them just a little before we knew what would happen. This passage tells us as much about them as it does about ourselves. Well, Boaz accepts her proposal for him to redeem her. And, and, and just as he was impressed that she was willing to follow Naomi back to Bethlehem, he says here, that, and that's that first kindness he mentions, he says here that he is even more impressed that she's seeking him out to be a redeemer. And the, and the first reason he gives, which I, I think is, uh, is honest, right? Because he's an, he's an old guy. You know, he's probably 40. <laughs> Don't get insulted. I'm 42. But back at this time, he's probably a middle-aged guy. Uh, Naomi's probably in her teens, early 20s. And so he basically says, you know, there are a lot of better-looking young guys. And, and even if you think, well, she's just going after him because he's rich, well, he mentions there, there are even rich young men that she could have gone after. So it's not just a wealth thing. You know, he says, you have not gone after younger men, whether rich or poor. So he takes that as a compliment, as he probably should. Uh, but it's also significant because it's not just that she could have gone after rich or poor young men, but she's likely young enough that she could marry anyone. And she has no zero zip zilch obligation to marry Boaz because while he's acting as a redeemer for the family of Naomi, Ruth is technically not a member of the family of Naomi. I mean, except through marriage, which is now uh, annulled in the sense that her husband, uh, Malon, has died. So she's still acting not only for her own benefit, which it will be. But for Naomi's family, it's Naomi's family line that will be continued, not Ruth. So Ruth has left everything behind for her mother-in-law and, of course, for her faith in Yahweh. And Boaz notices. He says that first kindness is wonderful, and the second kindness is not just that she picked him, an old guy, over the young bucks, but that she's doing this to further the line of Elimelech whom she really has no other devotion to, no other uh, obligation to. And so then he calls her a worthy woman. Uh, let, let's read that text again. He says, I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Uh, that word, or phrase, I should say, is important. Um, Esheth. Chayil, my Hebrew pronunciation is probably pretty terrible, but this is the same word used in Proverbs 31, right? We think of the Proverbs 31 woman. Uh, Proverbs 31.10 translates uh, that worthy woman as excellent wife. It says, an excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. So he leaves her with this this absolutely uh, beautiful uh, compliment 
Not only will he do for her all that she asks, but he lets her know that everyone in town knows that you are an excellent wife. Well, that's a compliment on the one hand, uh, but it's also a revelation. If all the fellow townsmen know that you would be an excellent wife, it's continuing to build upon this great kindness that she has done him. So understand that he's saying, you know, you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. You've gone after me. And then he basically says, because everybody in town knows that you would make a good wife. I, I think this is giving us a hint that uh, Ruth here is is uh, sought after by quite a few people. And so, of course, um, he has already shown his affection in her when she was out in the field. And this affection is blossoming, uh, but not in um, in ways that we thought would be immoral, as we were kind of led to believe by the tricky author. But we see it's all being done according to God's will. And so it seems like the story has come to an end, right? But not so fast. There's another conflict, another obstacle preventing Ruth and Boaz from marrying. It turns out that although Boaz is eager to marry Ruth and redeem Naomi's family line, he's actually not the first in line. There is someone else who has, let's say, first dibs. <laughs> Verses 12 and 13, Boaz says, And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, then good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as Yahweh lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Well, the author of the book of Ruth, uh, you know, I tell you what, um, what's that guy? Hitchcock, right? Has nothing on this guy because we are left in suspense again. We got all the way through that suspense of whether they would be immoral. And now that they're being moral, another obstacle this time. Well, will this other potential redeemer swoop in and bring it all to nothing? We now recall Naomi's words way back in chapter 2 when she first learned of Boaz. She said to Ruth, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. One of our redeemers. Oh, no, it's like the Chekhov's gun principle, right? If you show a gun in the first act, you better use it in the third act. <laughs> well, we should have known this was coming. We're left in suspense again. He tells her to stay the night. Again, not for any unwholesome reason, but because it was probably dangerous for her to travel back home in the darkness of the wee morning hours. But Moaz doesn't want her to think that he's just blowing her off, right? Oh, no, there's someone better. Uh, uh, well, let's, well, let's just sleep on it. No, he binds it all with an oath. As Yahweh lives, I will redeem you. So verses 14 and 15, it says, so she lay at his feet until the morning but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And then he said, bring the garment that you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. So Ruth takes off early so that she can sneak back home without being seen. Now, this isn't to cover up sin, but to avoid the impression of sin. And even Boaz says, seemingly to another right unnamed person, maybe a worker came by in the morning or during the night, 
He says, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. Um, or he could just be speaking, I say generally, I guess, to the universe or to her even, like that's what he doesn't want. But regardless, there's this deep sense to avoid a scandal of suspected impropriety. So he sends her on her way with a figurative down payment of his promise to take care of them. And so our last three verses read as thus. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Well, friends at home, I'm afraid we too will have to wait overnight until tomorrow because how the matter turns out will not be known today you'll have to tune in tomorrow for the exciting conclusion in chapter four so dear saints i'm glad that you've joined me today for this special time hopefully just me at the helm uh was sufficient tomorrow we'll be back with an amazing guest um, dear saints we're going to turn the page to ruth chapter four it's the final chapter in this beautiful an intriguing uh, story. So it looks like we do have one caller on the line. I have just a few minutes left in the program. We'll take it. We'll give them the, the time. All right, for, all right, caller, who are you? What do you want? Oh, I'm very important gentleman here. I'm calling <laughs> from North Carolina. <laughs> How are you today? This I've been told in advance this was my dad. That's that. Otherwise, I would not have answered uh, so curtly. Uh, this is my dad, well, I, Kim Boo. How are you doing? I am doing wonderful. I'm thoroughly enjoying this book, uh, enjoying your one-man show there. But also, I enjoy the uh, the two-man shows there. I uh, and I'm looking for the day that when you and Brady actually do a tag team show, that would be uh, be quite uh, quite the event there. I'm sure you guys work well together. But what I called for about the Book of Ruth, I, I love the Book of Ruth. It uh, just basically shows a lot of normal life, nothing less or more than we experience today. But when I read Ruth, I, I think a lot of my wife and my marriage, not for a lot of the issues that she had, but uh, like Boaz and Ruth, I, I'm a lot older. Uh, we met by circumstance. Uh, I like to say that I chased her till she caught me. But uh, the thing about that it reminds me is, is something about Ruth is, is her compassion, her, her unfailing devotion, the respect, the grace, the honesty, uh, honesty to a fault, I would say, integrity or generosity, you know, is uh, and so it reminds me in that fact, a lot of my wife and a lot of my marriage. I when we met, uh, she basically, as Ruth, had accepted the status quo. She lived in the mountains. I'm from the city. And then uh, she had she was 29. I was 39. So a uh, little bit of similarity there in the age. But the fact that she had accepted the status quo and what it is about me that she saw, uh, I have no idea. But I, I do thank God for that, and I thank God for my wife. And, and this story, I don't know why, I guess because of those few points, reminds me so much of my wife and marriage. And it's just, uh, and it, it really makes me feel good when I read it and I think about Shelley a lot. So I just well, thought I'd make that small comparison. Yeah, that's a nice sentiment. I mean, because I think stories like this in the scriptures, true stories, of course, inspired by the by this by the Holy Spirit, 
they they help us connect with them in these personal ways. Sometimes it's hard for us to connect with Abraham being told to sacrifice his son or Moses leading the people out of Israel. But, you know, maybe an old guy can uh, empathize with uh, Boaz, right, who has a young woman take fancy interest in him. And, of course, the Lord blesses that. I pray the Lord blesses y'all's relationship. Um, it certainly benefits me if it does, <laughs> but uh, folks, you know, we're here at the time. Folks, we're at time though, so I'm gonna have to let you go. Uh, Absolutely, but thank you and so I enjoy much. your show. Thank you. Thanks for calling in. Until uh, until next time, though, I hope that God's peace and blessings will be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in Thy strong word.